I, me, mine. Shalom. Thank you for joining us for this Sunday sermon of May 24th, 2020 from Christ Church, Jerusalem. In this seventh week of Easter, the Reverend David Pelegi continues sharing from the Acts of the Apostles. Our Western worldview, featured in the Beatles' last recorded song, I, Me, Mine, puts the self in the center of all things. This self-centered worldview is a dangerous impediment to living out the gospel and being witnesses of that new life found through the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus of Nazareth. David addresses the need for unity and challenges the usual view of unity derived from the New Testament. Before we continue to the sermon, we'd like to share a praise report with you. The Christ Church Mercy Fund has assisted more than 100 families through the coronavirus pandemic here in Jerusalem. The Mercy Fund has provided food and financial assistance and has also helped individuals navigate the maze of government bureaucracy. This is made possible by your generous donations. Thank you so much for partnering with us. If you'd like to contribute, visit ChristChurchJerusalem.org slash donate. Now, on to the lectionary readings. The first reading is from the book of Acts, chapter 1, beginning at the first verse. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he has chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they stood steadfastly towards heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, Why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, 
a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. This is the word of the Lord. On page 1190 of your church Bible, you'll find our second reading for today. It comes from the first letter of the Apostle Peter to the churches. We should probably note it was in the time of probable discrimination and some persecution. He wrote in the fourth chapter, beginning at verse 12, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of the Messiah's suffering, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Messiah, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this manner. matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. The word of the Lord. The gospel portion for the seventh Sunday in Easter is from the gospel uh, according to John, chapter 17, found on page 1069 of our church Bibles. It's uh, the prayer of Jesus for unity, and we will honor an ancient Christian tradition. Please stand. It is a tradition to stand in the presence of, of a king, particularly when one is speaking and teaching. We honor that today as we honor the words of the Messiah. The good news, according to John. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you 
before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They are yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father. Keep through your name those whom you have given me, and they may be one as we are. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Father, we ask that um, you would uh, speak to us through the Holy Spirit that you have sent among us. Maybe it May it be the Spirit of Jesus, who is once again our teacher. We ask that these words will be a real Torah for each one of us. There will be guidance and direction and instruction. We pray that you'll encourage us and challenge us. And in the mighty name of Jesus, we ask these things. Amen. We um, are going to continue in the book of Acts as we have done in the past, at least during the season of Easter. And it's a good time or a good place to, to remind folks, uh, as we have perhaps for the last few Sundays, that when we come to this book, we need to be uh, very careful not to uh, misunderstand what's being presented here. And uh, it is very human that all of us want to look back, usually in the distant past, and we want some kind of golden age, some kind of uh, uh, perfect society, or sometime uh, in human history when things were absolutely wonderful. But uh, as we, again, mentioned last week, there is no golden age, especially uh, in the history of the church. There have been times when God has worked mightily through his people, but there is no perfect, there's no perfect church, even in the book of Acts. And may I remind you that the book of Acts, the the believers, the early believers, had their share of persecution, they had their share of division, they had their share of misunderstanding, they had their share of, um, of uh, confusion. And it was a very difficult period. But look, Luke, who uh, recorded these events or summarized uh, these events, not only wanted to show us how the gospel, the message of Jesus, left Jerusalem and went to the ends of the earth, but he also wanted to remind us, no matter what age we live in, that uh, those foundational principles of the early 
followers of Jesus are important in every age. And that's why we'd like to look at the book of Acts again without nostalgia, without uh, rose-colored glasses, yet at the same time acknowledging that uh, God worked in an amazing way and that uh, all of us uh, have a lot to learn and to relearn from the early church. And we'll start in Acts chapter 1. That was our reading. And it uh, always strikes me, or it seems to me uh, to be most essential, that um, the 40 days in which Jesus remained with his disciples, that uh, he taught them. So here we see the centrality of teaching and the importance of instruction. And he taught them, of course, not about... uh, fundraising, or perhaps the principles of cross-cultural ministry, as important uh, as both of those things may be. He didn't uh, teach them about the place of free will versus predestination. He taught them about the kingdom of heaven. He taught them about the kingdom of God. And that, of course, reflects what we read about in the Gospels. Yes, that the message of the kingdom was essential to Jesus. And as you recall, or we've mentioned here more than once, yes, Jesus spends his earthly ministry teaching about the kingdom. He illustrates it with parables to make it simple and understandable, not to confuse us or to confuse people or to somehow trick us. He demonstrates the kingdom with his miracles, his healings, his deliverance from Satan, And so the kingdom is important, it's central. And what's I think essential for Jesus and to help us understand the message that we read about in the gospels is that the kingdom is more than one thing. Yes, the kingdom, our understanding of the kingdom is uh, actually a bit nuanced. It is not only uh, the rule and reign of Jesus the Messiah, But further, it is the place where Jesus the Messiah, or God working through Jesus the Messiah, is touching and redeeming the lives of people. It's the place where God is taking control, and God is bringing restoration or healing, or God is bringing deliverance or reconciliation. And I think this becomes for us something uh, important, as we'll see in just a moment. But it's also a community. The kingdom of heaven is about a movement, or it's about a group that later we will know, uh, perhaps call the church. It's about people who have made Jesus king. And we see evidence of this, more than sufficient evidence of this in the Gospels. And so these two definitions are overlapping, yet they're slightly different. And so the kingdom becomes the, the central message. Interestingly, in the book of Acts, though, the kingdom is a message that almost is always preached to a Jewish audience. It's not Paul doesn't, uh, Peter, uh, they don't talk about the kingdom when they meet Gentiles, perhaps because Gentiles won't understand, uh, won't have that understanding. And certainly it becomes, uh, it, it, by this time it had become a Jewish technical term. So the kingdom is essential. 
The kingdom is God's uh, working powerfully, powerfully through the life of Jesus, yes, and reclaiming what's rightfully his, beginning to rule and reign and to take control. But also what's important is this contrast um, between what we read in verse 4 and what we read in verse 6. It says, here in verse 6 it says, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And I think what's uh, essential about this question, there are two points that we'll make. The first point is that there's a radical misinterpretation. And in this misinterpretation and misunderstanding throughout the centuries, we've used this verse or we've used this question to beat up on the Jewish people. It's become us and them. And the typical Christian commentary or uh, preaching point, it goes something like this. Those Jews, quote unquote, they were just looking, you know, to be restored to their land. They wanted a messianic kingdom. Uh, they were thinking in nationalistic terms. They were thinking about land. They were thinking about nationhood. But we, Christians, we're thinking about something spiritual or we're focusing on something spiritual. We're focusing on the kingdom of God and going to the very ends of the earth. Can I just remind everybody that there wasn't an us and them at, that, at the time this was written. There wasn't a Gentile church uh, and uh, Jews who didn't believe in Jesus. This is, you might say, a discussion, an internal Jewish discussion because just as some Jews were waiting for uh, the restoration of Israel, yes, the coming of the Messiah who would purify the temple and gather in the exiles, there were also other Jews who were um, teaching and preaching about the kingdom of heaven. Both are Jewish ideas, both are Jewish concepts. Yes, and we need to understand this as a discussion between uh, different Jewish points of view. But even beyond that, you notice that Jesus doesn't answer the question. The question isn't answered. Jesus acknowledges, and Luke, he acknowledges that there will, there still is a place for the Jewish people in God's plans. Something that uh, many Christians uh, fail to uh, fail to remember. And in Luke 21, Jesus talks about a time of difficulty for Jerusalem. But he says that Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So there is some kind of restoration. And as we read in Romans and in other places in the New Testament, surely God is not finished with his people that there are promises that God makes to the Jewish people as well as to the whole human race. And some, at some time and in some way, those promises will be fulfilled. Very complicated now because of Israel is a secular state. It's in conflict with the Palestinians. It's hard to wade through some of these things and to get to the basic foundational I think, biblical understanding that we have here. 
but it is not a question of we versus them. Yes. God will restore his promise. God will keep in some way, we don't know how, the promises that he makes to the Jewish people over and over again through the scripture. But the emphasis here, Jesus is saying to us, don't speculate. Don't spend our time trying to calculate the end. Don't be trying to figure out what's going to happen next. What's the next five points on God's big agenda? In fact, what Jesus commands us to do Yes, is challenging enough. I always like that quote by Mark Twain when he was asked, um, someone asked him, does it worry you that there are many things in the Bible that you don't understand? And the American author and humorist said, no, it doesn't bother me at all. He said, what bothers me are the things that I do understand and the things that I don't do. <laughs> Okay, that's the things that concern us. And the charge that Jesus gives us here is not to become obsessed with the end and not to try to calculate what's going to happen. Instead, he says, you are my witnesses and you will be empowered by the Holy Spirit. And I think that is challenging enough. And uh, even in its, our traditional interpretation of this verse, it's difficult. Because most of us, not all of us, listening to this and those sitting uh, in the congregation this morning, we come, most of us, from a Western culture. And when we hear that verse, yes, or when we read these words, you are my witnesses, it immediately conjures up the idea or even perhaps the anxiety. Hey, I have to go out and be a witness. I need to pass out tracts, I mean to tell someone my testimony, and perhaps if I don't do these things, I, you know, I, uh, I, I feel guilty, I somehow don't feel confident enough to, to be a witness, and that is all true. We are to be witnesses. Indeed, we are to be witnesses. And one of the points that, go, that goes all the way through the book of Acts and, interestingly, through the book of John uh, and other parts of the New Testament is very simply that the life of Jesus, the life and death of Jesus, yes, was witnessed um, uh, by uh, many people. They, these eyewitnesses, yes, encountered Jesus alive and victorious over the grave. And we ourselves are to be witnesses of that reality. Not only the life and death of Jesus, but uh, in a minute we'll get to, to the understanding that we should be a witness of his ascension as well. It's because when Jesus ascends that he begins to his, at least I believe in many others, that he begins uh, his ruling and reigning. But the words and the concept should uh, challenge us in a, perhaps in a deeper way. Because let's understand for a moment the word witness. Now the word witness in Greek is a mar to be a martyr. But it, uh, at this time when uh, Jesus spoke and when the book of uh, Luke was written, to be a martyr did not, be, did not mean you were one who died for Jesus. 
That um, word is applied only later, in the early Christian period, and people have to give their life, yes, for uh, refusing to worship idols or refusing to bow down to the emperor. So the word martyr in Greek uh, doesn't have the connotation that it does now. But of course, Jesus comes out of a a Jewish, Hebrew-speaking environment. And the word witness, yes, those of you who know enough Hebrew, where where does witness come from? Comes from Edah. What is an Edah? An Edah is a community. And Edah is, is what God calls Israel in the book of Exodus, when they're no longer a bunch of individuals. And he starts saying, you are now my Edah. You are now my community. Sometimes it's translated as family, or congregation rather. Yes, but in Edah, in, in biblical Hebrew, it's a very powerful concept. It's about a community of people who are going somewhere, who have a direction, they have an intention. It's not just a crowd of people who come to a a concert or go to a movie or show up at a shopping mall. Yes, it is a people that have a calling, they have a destiny, they have a direction. Yes, that's what it means to be a witness. Even today in Hebrew, Yes, the, uh, oftentimes a community is called an Eda. And when God says, you are my witnesses, he's not just saying that Mike and Joe and Fred and Sam and Mary and Sue have to go out and somehow witness for me. He's saying, you, yes, the community, you are the ones who are going to be my witnesses. So it's not just individuals, it's the group. Now the reason I need to, I think we need to rehearse this is because this somehow is not in our worldview. Again, if most of us come from the West or we're influenced by Western culture, what's king or queen in our lives, what's central, yes, and our self-understanding perhaps from the year 1500s onwards until we come to today, it's the self. Yes, it's the self. I'm king. The world somehow revolves around me. The world revolves around my need. The world revolves around, in our day and age, my need for self-expression, my need for quote-unquote authenticity, my need for personal freedom. And we have this worldview when it comes to the spiritual life because this is the spirit of the age. And we as Christians are very often even subtly influenced by the spirit of the age in which we live. That's why we have to be very careful at times and very thoughtful, yes, to reject, yes, whatever spirit of the age in which we live. And so what does the spiritual life look like? looks like my relationship with God and it looks like my justification and it's my holiness and it's my temptation and it's my downfall or it's my overcoming 
and it becomes very human-centered. It's all about us, us, us. But that's not the biblical worldview, you might say. I think, um, and I've said this before, it dates me, but I'm not ashamed to be dated. Yes, it reminds me of the, um, probably the worst Beatles song ever recorded. Yes. I, Me, Me, Mine by George Harrison on the last Beatles album, Let It Be. Actually, after hearing that song, you probably can figure why they, why they broke up. <laughs> and by the way, this is the 50th anniversary of that album. And so we'll be hearing a lot about, about the Let It Be sessions and the, and the press in the upcoming months as that the movie is going, to, is going to be released. I, me, me, mine. But that's not the context in which this, this was written. The context in which Jesus says these words He's talking in a Jewish context, a Middle Eastern context. It's in the context of community. And when he says, you are my witnesses, he's saying, yeah, there are a lot of other communities, but I want to create a new community. I want to create a new people. I want to create a new family. And that new family, that new community will actually belong to me. And it's not, by the way, too hard to see because in the Middle East, even where we live today, in the Middle East, there is sort of an opposite worldview. And that opposite, uh, that view is opposite to how we understand the world. We understand the world, I think, therefore I am. Here, still in the Middle East, I am, or rather, let's put it this way, I belong, therefore I am. I belong to a family, I belong to an ethnic group, I belong to uh, a religious group, that gives me identity. Yes, that gives me identity, that tells me who I am. And I think Jesus follows that model. But it's our primary form of identity isn't that we're Italians, or it's not that we are um, uh, from a certain family or from a certain region, our primary form of identity should, that we, should be that we belong to him. And that collective identity is our witness. Elementary and simple, yes. But is it something that we uh, attempt to work through? And is it something that, uh, we, uh, that concerns us? Very often not. And last week we talked about how Paul was grieved when he went to a city full of idolatry. In the same way we should be grieved in the way that uh, our communities, maybe our families, our churches, our denominations, yes, our ministries, the way that we, who call upon the name of the Lord as a, as a group, have desecrated the name of God. Should be something that uh, causes us some anguish. 
Now, what does a community do? Not just a group of individuals. As I said, we witness the life and death of Jesus the Messiah, just as the early apostles did. We didn't see Jesus die. We didn't see him rise from the dead. But surely, yes, we experience his presence and his power and his ruling and reigning in our lives. Surely, the kingdom of God is at work amongst us. And surely, he's present when we worship or when we fellowship or when we minister to others. And yet, how does a community, how does a community actually have, have a witness? Or what is the witness? That we can pray for people and they get healed? Yes. That we live righteously? Yes. That we live in joy and in peace? Yes. Because that's what, how Paul characterizes the kingdom of heaven. But I'd like to take you to the gospel reading. Because the gospel reading sums up, yes, one of the most powerful ways in which we need to be a witness. And that way is through uh, having unity in our community. And the unity that we're talking about is not some abstract hippie ideal. Yes, the unity that we're talking about is something very practical. And that unity, uh, depending on what part of the New Testament you read, is based on different things. And in John's gospel, unity in a community is based on, yes, eternal life. Because we read in 17.3 that eternal life or having life, yes, is knowing the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And Jesus goes on in the same chapter to tell us or to pray for us and he prays that just as Jesus and the Father are one, so that we as a community will be one, that we will be united, not only in him, but with each other. And at the end of the chapter, uh, in, in, in ch chapter 17, my prayer is not for, those, for them alone, but I pray for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, Yes, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me and that they may be one as we are one. I and them, you and me, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me. That's John's gospel. Yes, it's a sharing of eternal life. And by the way, how do we keep, how do we stay in eternal life? And I'm not talking about working out your salvation or I'm not talking about earning your salvation. Eternal life here is being defined as being in a relationship with the Father and the Son. We not only trust, we not only abide, but John makes it clear, that, or the commentary on John's gospel, which is the, John's, the epistle in 1 John, it's made clear it's by, that, by loving each other. That's how we maintain unity. Well, for Paul, what does unity look like? 
unity looks like Jews and Gentiles who can live together. That there can be one new man. And Paul's using the image of, uh, of a marriage. Yes, Jews and Gentiles, yes, the basic division in society according to Scripture. We're not getting along. There was great misunderstanding. There was anti-Semitism. There was Jewish antagonism to Gentiles. And Paul says what proves the gospel is that Jews and Gentiles can live together and, and be in one community. That's a radical idea. And at the same time, Paul makes it clear that Jewish believers in Jesus should keep something of a distinct identity. Yes, but still, there's one new humanity. There's one new community. I once had a teacher uh, who taught me uh, Talmud, and uh, she was Orthodox uh, from the Hebrew University. And uh, one day I was at her house drinking tea, and I asked her what she thought of St. Paul. And I figured she would say, like so many other uh, Jewish scholars used to say back then, uh, and, and uh, it's changing, by the way. I thought, well, she would say, well, Jesus was all, just all right, but St. Paul, he invented Christianity, overturned the Torah, turned Jesus into a god, etc., etc. By the way, a lot of these, uh, a lot of current modern Jewish understanding is based on liberal German scholarship of the late 19th and 20th century. And ironically, many of these German scholars, liberal scholars who proposed such ideas actually um, uh, became Nazis or supporters of the national, uh, of Hitler. And she said, no, I think, she said, Paul was very Jewish. He was very Jewish. And I said, and I began to, to list a number of things that might be distinctive in Paul's uh, understanding. And she said, no, I don't find anything in Paul that I can't find somewhere in Jewish sources. And then she stopped and said, oh, there is one thing. She said, what made Paul so radical and so different, yes, from anybody else of his age, is that he established working communities of Jews and Gentiles. That's what she found to be so amazing. Now, many of us don't live with a large Jewish population, or we don't know a lot of Jewish believers. But wherever we live, we live in a place where there's ethnic and social tension and conflict. And if the body of Christ, yes, can show by the way that we love each other and relate to each other and work with each other, Yes, that we can overcome the social tensions, the economic tensions, the ethnic tensions, the political tensions, yes, which are at an all-time high around the world. Yes, that's being a witness. It's being a witness of the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. By the way, in the book of Acts, what does unity look like? It's submission to Jesus, but it's submission to Jesus and doing things together, such as eating together, 
praying together, being taught together. Entrance into the community, the initiation rite, is through baptism. But that's unity in the book of Acts. But of course, we all have an enemy, do we not? Unity has its enemy. And that enemy, yes, is, uh, well, it's us. And a good place to start is in 1 Corinthians, even 2 Corinthians, and to read about a community that lacks no spiritual gift, Paul says, but yet it's not very spiritual. And you have uh, arrogance, pride. The community is divided along social lines. The rich have, the poor don't. The community is uh, full of uh, divisions. I follow Paul, I follow Apollos. Community is full of people promoting themselves or dealing with their anxieties or their, um, um, or their whatever their personal insecurities might be. And in the process, yes, the body, Paul, the, in, the metaphor that Paul uses, the body of Christ, doesn't function very well. So this is our challenge. Our challenge is not only to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be empowered by the Holy Spirit, to be those witnesses who go out, but to be witnesses, to understand ourselves, that we are witnesses, yes, as a community, as a family, It was God's intention from the beginning. God always, in the words of my teacher, Dwight Pryor, God was always looking for a people. He always wanted to create a family, and he wanted to dwell in that family, and he wanted to be glorified in a group, in a community, in a ministry, yes, in a church, in a a village, in a city, in a nation. Again, it's not about only about me and Jesus. And the world desperately, desperately needs to see an alternative to the division, to the hatred, yes, that uh, is uh, carrying up our societies, whether they're political or economic. And the church needs to be careful not to reflect those divisions, but again, to reflect the unity that we have in the Holy Spirit. This is what it means to be unified. There's one other warning in all this, yes? It's very clear from the scripture, yes, very clear from the scripture that um, God does not desire us to be alone. He says to Adam, be fruitful and multiply. He calls Abraham and says, I'm going to make you a great family. Yes, he calls the, the church and talks about its expansion throughout the world, 
Well, you might think, I don't really need the church. I don't need the Christian community. But in actual fact, God made us for community. And the only way that we will survive and keep our faith intact, yes, is being a fully functioning, yes, member of a community, knowing our place, not being arrogant, not being full of division, not being rebellious, yes, but uh, submitting ourselves one to another. So the old saying, the church needs you, is wrong. We need the church. We need the community. Otherwise, we won't survive. And our faith will not remain intact. But finally, the warning in all this is very simple. Yes, whether it's Acts, sorry, whether it's uh, Exodus 19, or whether it's Acts chapter 2, or chapter 3, chapter 4, the concept or the understanding is, is that unity is not only good for us socially and spiritually, but unity and amongst the believers is the very thing that brings God's power down. Unity attracts more and more of the Holy Spirit. And the more united we are, and this is not, by the way, about, it's not about agreeing with uh, everybody or having ex the exact same theology or the same doctrine. But the more united we are, the more knitted together in love that a community is, the more power it will have and the more presence of Jesus, yes, through the Holy Spirit. And when a community is united and the power and presence of Jesus is in the midst of that community, when people pull together in a single direction for a single purpose and they defer one another for a greater goal or a greater end, that's when God does incredible things in our midst. And we all want to know, why isn't there revival? Lord, why, why? We're waiting for revival. But revival happens when we humble ourselves and, and unify. And that's when we, we, more often than not, a community will be filled with the power of God. We all want God to move. But are we willing to pay the price? Yes. Are we willing to pay the price? There's a lot more that can be said about community and how to do this. But my purpose today is only to remind us, yes, of the goal. It's not impossible. It's happened many times in Christian history. We said in the beginning, people are not always perfect. There's no golden age. The golden age wasn't John Wesley. The golden age wasn't Azusa Street. Yes, the golden age, you know, wasn't uh, the early church in Rome. But in all those cases, God worked in a mighty way. And we should expect, yes, and invite him to work in that same way amongst us today. Perhaps we, we begin with, what is my attitude toward the community? Where do I need to repent? Where do I need to change? What things have I been doing that contribute to the upbuilding and the witness of our community, witnessing to the reality of the life and death of Jesus? 
And what things are we doing, yes, that bring dishonor to the Lord's name and disprove, yes, by the way we live, the reality of that resurrection and that resurrection life. Lord, help your people. Yes, we want your power and your presence. Help us, we pray. Help us to see a bigger picture. Help us to see how each one of us can contribute to the upbuilding and the strengthening of the community in which you have placed us. How we can bring glory and honor to your name. And how our unity, yes, will show the world that indeed we have eternal life, resurrection life. Help your people, Lord. We pray in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening. Our sermons and Bible studies are on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and more. Sermons can also be found on YouTube. Follow us on Facebook for alerts on live streams. If you are blessed by these teachings, please prayerfully consider giving toward the work of Christchurch. Visit ChristchurchJerusalem.org. Blessings from the City of the Great King.